Turn in your Bibles this morning again to Luke chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 12 of the 14th final installment of our Savior Saga as we lead up to the ministry of Jesus Christ and as we come next week to the beginning of the Beatitudes, uh, one of my personal favorite parts of the gospel record we're getting to and this morning setting the stage for that. And last week as we saw Jesus in this, in this mode of conflict, and, and I, I would assume that all of you have experienced this same thing. You're going to come against criticism. You're going to see prejudice. You're going to see practices that people undertake that you know, don't have anything to do with the Bible. You're going to see religious pretenses. You will, in your life, be forced to come to that place to where you are going to have to stand uh, on the Word of God. And, and as we sung, if our God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? What can separate us from the love of God? Amen? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We need to live that way in this day and age that we're walking in. Because as we come this morning, surely the moment you exit these doors, if you weren't attacked before you got here, chances are you will be by the time you leave. Maybe in your mind, maybe it will be something family-related, maybe it's something to do with the workplace, might be something that has to do with our government and the way things you're going to come across criticism. And where are you going to stand? And how are you going to stand? What are you going to do when that criticism comes? And again, there's nothing in Scripture that is happenstance. There's nothing that are pure circumstance that just seem to unfold and God somehow responds to it. It's ordained. God is the sovereign king of the universe. And all that happens in the life of Christ and as it's recorded for us in the Gospels is by plan and purpose. And so this morning we see Jesus as the dependent Savior. And as I set the premise for this this morning, I would simply ask you the question, you know, as you arose this morning and you faced the things that you're going to face, are you essentially seeking the Lord? Are you dependent on God? Or are you just dependent upon yourself? Are you just simply intelligent? Are you just gifted? Are you self-dependent? Or are you Savior-dependent? And I pray you're Savior-dependent. Because if you haven't reached a place in your life to where you are in great need and bankrupt before God, if you haven't reached a place to where you find yourself without all of the answers, hungering and thirsting for those things that you cannot solve yourself, I guarantee you in your life you're going to come to that place at some point in time. And perhaps the best practice you can pick up is the one that Jesus picked up here and models for us. He's about to pick his disciples. And rather than in his humanity and his flesh and just simply looking and see who's tallest and who speaks the most well, He goes and meets with his Father God, and he prays. And so I believe for us, we need to be people of prayer. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you for the patience of your people. Lord, to come and to listen and to sit. And We pray this morning that it wouldn't be my voice that we hear, but yours. Wouldn't be your words that I mess up, but your words that would ring true. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us as your children. Lord, we want to gather into this group that will meet with you there on the Mount of the Beatitudes. Lord, we want to sit at your feet and to listen. And so, God, we ask that you'd speak to us, guide us, direct us, prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive from heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 12, uh, we see the dependent Savior Jesus. And now it came to pass in those days that he went out onto the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. Would you underline that? Would you circle it? 
And here's why. If Jesus faced with what is perhaps one of the more monumental decisions that he would make in his ministry while on this earth, he spent two and a half to three and a half years, depending on how you calculate the time, uh, in ministry on this earth. He is going to be hanging out with some folks rather frequently, you know, as the disciples, the apostles specifically. He's going to choose these men. And if Jesus, faced with that decision, spent the night in prayer, how important do you think it is that you pray before you decide anything? Because Jesus was God. Amen? He was also man. Amen? Fully God, fully man. In His humanity, Jesus, like all of the rest of us, we look at the outside. He could see who was taller, who was shorter, who spoke well, who had a large vocabulary, who had the you know best-looking clothes. I mean, he would have been able to discern with just simply his physical mind, his physical body, all of those things about the disciples. And so he goes and spends the evening in prayer with his Father God. And I would ask you uh, another question. Are you a pray-after-you-act person, or are you a pray-before-you-act person? Tough question, isn't it? It's one of those things that we struggle with, I think, as human beings. And God knows that, and so we have the example of Jesus. He was a pray-before-he-acted person. And that is a model for us. You see, I very frequently, even as a pastor, I'm a pray after I act, after I create a problem, after I make a disaster, after I make the wrong choice, after I've done the things that I can do in my flesh, after I've looked at the world and everything in it and said, okay, my brain says this. Anybody else in that boat? That's ah, kind of all of us probably. Yeah, as human beings, we do that. We, we look at the things in the world, and really we're not actually asking God for anything. We're actually telling Him to bless what we've done. Amen? And then we ask Him to, to unmess up what we messed up. Amen? And so Jesus here gives us this model of praying first, not after the fact. Pray before you act. And see, the Jesus that I know wanted a word from Father God. Do you want a word from Father God? If you do, you need to talk to Him. My problem is frequently, and probably yours is as well, is that I don't actually talk to Him. I make statements at Him. Okay? I say, well, I did this, God. And what do you think of that? I'm not really asking Him for information. I'm not beseeching the mind of God. I'm asking Him to validate decisions I've already made in my own head. I'm asking Him to sort through the information that I think is most pertinent. Can I tell you that's a recipe for spiritual disaster in your life? One of the things that I think we struggle with most frequently, is actually asking God to give us information and then waiting on God until we get it. Anybody have a problem with the asking-waiting routine? I ask and then I do, sometimes. Sometimes I act and then ask Him to bless it. I have it all messed up. And I want to remind you that the secret ingredient to finding God's will very often is nothing more complex than time. Jesus went on to the mountain and he continued all night in prayer. We meet with the guys Tuesday mornings, 5.30 here at the church, specifically to pray. We usually pray for an hour. After an hour, there is a mind-numbing silence that falls over us, okay? It's like, 
we're, we're just, we don't have anything else to pray about. We kind of run out of things. Now imagine that Jesus believed it important enough to spend the whole evening before he chose his disciples talking to his father. We need to do a better job of talking to God before we act. That's the message here. And when it was day, and I'll give you a little bit of a picture of this more so next week. Jesus is going to go to what we call the Mount of the Beatitudes. He's probably in the area of the Horns of Hattin, which is a site that in the middle 1100s, uh, the Sheikh Saladin uh, fought the Crusaders and, and defeated them. But there's two little mountains just to the north of the modern-day city, which is the location of the old city, which is where Jesus is right now at that time, in Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so as Jesus is in this region, as I shared with you before, he's not traveling very far, just a few miles. And so he walks up into the foothills. He will then come back to, to this place that he will deliver what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, an area in the northern uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee, and more on that next week. But the reason that this is important is Jesus is getting away from the crowd. Once again, we find him getting alone with God. And I want to give you a second thing this morning. Are you getting alone with God? Life is busy, amen? Are we, we live in a world that just swirls with anticipation of seemingly every second. There's hardly anything that we do that, that isn't impacted by the way of life that we live. If Jesus took time to spend with God, and he took time to pray, and Jesus had a devotional life that sought the face of God, Again, I ask you the question, how much more so for us? He's going to get alone with God. You know, we don't hear from God very well when we're watching TV, amen? We don't hear from God very well when we're driving down El Camino del Diablo on the freeway, amen? You're like, you're like and sometimes I pray when I'm driving. As a matter of fact, a lot of times I pray, but it's usually God save me. As I'm driving down the freeway, I'm kind of praying, but I'm not devotionally in contact with God. I'm, I'm simply asking Him to take care of me. If you want to hear God's voice, there's a second component here. And that is, you have to get alone with God. And I mean alone with God. That's not sitting with your wife. That's not sitting with your husband. That's not with your kids. That's not in the workplace. That is alone with God. You need a prayer closet somewhere. And it can be anywhere. But you need some alone time with God. Because that's where you clearly hear His voice. Because when I'm busy, I clearly hear just about everything but God's voice. Amen? Jesus was alone with the Lord. And when it was day, He called to His disciples and He called them unto Himself. And from them, again, would you notice that? Sometimes we get confused. Disciples means simply followers. So the disciples were numerous. They weren't just twelve. The disciples may have been hundreds. And he picks from them the apostles. Two totally different groups of people, though the apostles were also disciples. Do you understand? Disciples simply means followers. Apostles means one sent under a commission. In other words, a very specific task. And that's the apostles. There were 12 of them. And so he's gathering together this group of followers, probably a much larger number than the simple 12. And so in that, there would have been great variation of humanity. And he's going to pick from them. And he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So they are both disciples and apostles. So when you talk about the disciples, you can actually say they were the disciples, but that's really a larger group of people because they were both. 
And so make sure you understand that so that you don't get confused, because there are times when you look at the word disciple in the Bible, and it's nothing more than what you are. You are disciples of Christ. It means one under the tutelage of another or a follower. That's what the actual Greek word means. And so he says to them and begins to call them Simon, whom he also named Peter. And, of course, he's probably many of our favorites. I look at Peter and probably of the disciples, uh, he's the guy that I associate with best. Impulsive, uh, impetuous, uh, a little bit overzealous at times, uh, not too bright at times, uh, a little bit foot and mouth disease. Amen. Yeah, every once in a while, say anybody else say things you don't. You live long enough to. Oops, shouldn't have said that. Peter and Andrew, his brother. You're going to see some sets of brothers here. James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, also called the Zealot. And then the two Judases, or if you prefer, Judai. But they're actually Judases. Somebody asked me that. Is it Judases or Judai? I said, I don't know. When we associate that name with Judas Iscariot, it's not a good one, so everybody tries to attempt to forget it. And so Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also, you'll notice, his byword becomes a name for a traitor. To this day, when you call somebody a Judas, it means a traitor. Amen? And so here we see this fixed law of, of the Lord. He never, remember what he said about himself in John's Gospel? He said, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Amen? So when Jesus is praying, he's seeking exactly what he's told everyone else he's about. He's not acting interdependent of all of the things. He's acting dependent upon the whole picture. He's not acting on his own. He's acting in total concert with Father God. And family of God, that's what we want to do. We want to act in total concert with Father God. If you want His best, you have to seek it. You have to knock. It is then that you will find. We don't find the will of God by simply going willy-nilly about life. Amen? You, you don't. If you want God's perfect will, you need to spend some time talking to Him. Seeking Him. And then giving Him time to work in. And we hate that, amen? In our society, we have uh, waiting is almost a swear word, isn't it? Well, you have to wait. No, I'm not going to wait. Everywhere we go, we don't want to wait. We were at the hospital. I watched the guy get on the elevator. And I, and I mean literally two doors. You know how they have the big banks of elevators, and there's three on one side, three on the other. There's a guy waiting over here, and the door begins to open over here, but the door behind him was completely open, and so rather than waiting 2.7 nanoseconds for this door to open, he turned around and went into the one that was already open. I mean, we're impatient. Amen? We don't like waiting. Can I tell you that the child of God who's unwilling to wait on the Lord also doesn't have much strength in Christ? That's what your Bible says. They that wait upon the Lord. Prophet Isaiah said it perfectly. Shall be renewed in strength and mount up with wings as eagles and they will run and not grow weary. Anybody else get tired from running in your own strength? Oh man. It's probably the story of the first ten years of my life in ministry is how far can you go on your own? And so here, we see Jesus acting to hear the Lord's voice. Very often we, we make decisions. We blunder into very distressing situations simply because we don't earnestly pray about them. Jesus did not make that mistake. And because he's going to undertake this incredibly important uh, calling of his disciples... Uh, he, he's, it's almost matter of fact that we find Jesus praying here. It's just like, well, I wouldn't do anything else. Would you make prayer that much a habit in your life that I wouldn't do anything else? That I pray. It's taken me a long time in ministry to get to the place to where it's like pray first, then act. 
I want to encourage you, develop that habit now while you can. Because there will come a point in time when you're going to look at the situation around you and go, how did I get here? And let me tell you how you got there. Alone. You weren't talking to God. You may have thought you made the best decision possible, but you were not asking, you were not knocking, you were not seeking, and consequently you went someplace that God did not have planned for you, and now the egg has to be unscrambled. Amen? Be careful. The Lord was not only dependent on the faithfulness of His Father, but you're going to see He also becomes dependent on the disciples. <laughs> Think about it. Family of God, we need each other. We need each other. We are disciples. If you're a Christian, you're here this morning, you are a disciple of Christ. That means a follower of Christ. That means that Jesus leads and we follow. But one of the best things that we can do, and matter of fact, one of the main reasons for the church is for the edification of the body of Christ, the building up of the body of Christ. Amen? So in that, as you think about that for a moment, one of the reasons that you are involved in other people's lives is because much like a hospital, one day you may be in need of care and the next day you might be rendering care. You have the possibility to be used in someone else's life when they have need, and so we see that actually in the disciples. Remember, he asked them frequently, would you pray with me? Would you go here? Would you go there? Would you tarry a while with me? The Lord Jesus Himself actually, uh, though He's at times let down by the disciples, He is actually telling them, I want you to be a part of what's going to happen in these situations. And it really isn't until Jesus is crucified that they actually really get it. Amen? And we see Peter take off there in Acts chapter 2, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, now I get it. He's filled with the Spirit of God. And so Jesus had numerous followers and he prayed. And it is from there he got the answers that he was looking for. Father God spoke to him. I'll share a little story with you. One of my uh, favorite commentators, and I have to tell you that because these commentaries were written a long time ago, uh, much like some of you who know any of the guys from the mid 1800s, you read them and there's kind of some words in there. And you're like, did he really say that? <laughs> you know, kind of scratch your head. There's some uh, words that we just simply have removed from our modern English vocabulary. But one of mine is Dr. Harry Ironsides. I have dozens of his commentaries. A tremendous author. Um, he was one of the uh, original professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And when Dallas Theological Seminary, unlike today, where it's very prosperous and uh, you, they won't have the same problem, back in uh, 1924, they almost came to the point of bankruptcy. And so uh, Dr. Schaefer, the founder of, of the seminary, gathered together a few guys. One of them uh, was a young uh, Dr. Harry Ironsides, and they began to pray over the financial situation, and they kind of went around the circle, and Harry Ironsides was asked to pray, and he prayed in the Spirit and said, Lord, and he repeated what exactly what the Psalms tell us, the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Would you sell some of them and help us out? And so that was his prayer, a very simple prayer. They're in this circle. They're praying. And about... 15, 20 minutes later, uh, they were they were getting knocks on the door of this room that they were in, and, and the secretary was out there, you know, trying to kind of interrupt the prayer meeting. And all the while, and nobody knew it, of course, you know anything about Dallas, Fort Worth, there's a lot of trading of cattle that go on in there. Uh, some of the, the largest uh, cattle auctions in the world are held there in the Fort Worth stockyards, and uh, that's very close to where the seminary is located. And so the uh, secretary knocks on the door, and she had gotten a message and a, and a check. And the Texan that dropped it off happened to be one of the largest stockmen in the area. And he says, you know, I, I had a business deal going on, so I sold two carloads. That would be train carloads full of cattle. And he says, the deal fell through, and God just told me to come over here and give the money to you. 
and handed the check, and it was within about $50 of taking care of every debt that they had at the time. And after that, uh, Dr. Chafer took the check out, and he looked at Harry Ironsides, and he said, Harry, it's a good thing you prayed, because God was listening, and he sold the cattle. <laughs> yeah, are, are you bold enough to pray big things? No, we pray for easy things pretty, you know, pretty regularly. Are you praying for the big things? You know, sometimes we, we kind of get the mentality, well, we're a smaller church, so we'll pray for smaller things. Pray for big things. At the time that those words were true, in the 1920s, uh, the total student body population of Dallas Theological Seminary was 64. Pray big things. Jesus is now going to call the disciples. And as you look at these groups of men, I'm going to break them down a little bit for you. There are three groups of four. And then we're also going to see that they're sent out in twos. And there, to me, is a couple of things that we need to draw from these lists. And we'll look at them very briefly this morning because we're going to see them unfold as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. But I would share with you that ministry and the Christian life by default is not meant to be lived in a vacuum. We don't do well alone, especially us guys. You remember what God said about Adam, amen? It is not good that man should live alone. Amen? Do you know why that is? Because he created fellowship. He created relationship. He is a relational God. He created us so that we might have a relationship with Him. Can I tell you this? If you have one person, do you have any relationship? The answer is no. You don't. I mean, for those of you that have a relationship with yourself, we have medication for that. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to have a relationship with other people. Amen? And that's the truth of how God sends out the disciples ultimately. How he takes the apostles and says, here, you guys go together. And I want you to see that he puts together unlikely partners in crime as a general rule. Most of the master's men, as you look at them, we hardly even, you know, we know their names and very little else about them. But we do know some things from their names. And uh, as Luke names these guys, uh, there's, there's some controversy over Luke's lists and Matthew's lists. Um, but there really is no controversy. They're just simply uh, listed in a way that we can understand them. And again, they're from two different perspectives. You, you have Luke, who's a Gentile doctor. Uh, you have Matthew, who is a, uh, a Jewish tax collector who's very methodical. And so there, there are some subtle differences. But as we look at these, first you have John. And it looks like Peter takes care of Andrew and James and John and and John simply means God or Jehovah is a gracious giver. I love that about John's name. Because when you think about John, imagine, remember who he is, amen? This is the author of the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. This is the author of the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation. And he was the longest living of the apostles. And so as he's imprisoned in the island of Patmos, he writes the book of Revelation, and he probably spends the rest of his days in the city of Ephesus where he dies over 90 years old. And at the time, that was more than twice of the average life expectancy of a person during biblical times. And so he, he, God was gracious to John, sustained him for a very long time. We have Andrew with him. Uh, his name means manly. And if you know anything about John, John's the disciple whom God loved. Amen? Jesus loved. And so sometimes you can be overly emotional. And so who does God stick with? The guy who's got the most emotions, but somebody who's a little more manly, Andrew. It's how the Lord works. He, he takes our little weaknesses, the things that we ourselves may be lacking. We certainly see this in marriage. Amen? Man, am I thankful there aren't two of me. Uh, Connie is the, the, almost the, the polar opposite of me in many ways. And, and so she balances me out. And the same is true in ministry. I have men who serve in this church that I am so grateful for. Women who serve in this church that are so much a balance to who I am. They have gifts I don't have. 
They're able to do things I can't do. They take my weaknesses and they have strength in those areas. And so we see that in this first group. And it's interesting that James here, his name actually is a is a shortened version of Jacob or Jacob, and it, it does mean supplanter or heel catcher. And so you kind of have a crafty person and a manly person and a loving person, and then you've got Peter. And, and Peter's like, we don't even know what to call Peter. Peter's an out-of-the-box kind of guy. Now he's, You never knew what you were going to get with Peter, Amen. So, so you have this group gathered together, and they're going to kind of travel together. And we'll see that uh, as the gospel unfolds here before us as we continue our journey uh, here. But you, you take Andrew, and you take James, and you take Simon, who will be Peter, which means uh, really little rock. It doesn't mean rock. It actually means pebble, uh, which I kind of like. When I, when I look at the, the language there, it gives me a picture of Peter probably thought he was a little bigger than he really was. And we certainly see that as we see his life unfold before us in the gospel. And so uh, he's called Cephas, uh, but it really means pebble. Not the big one, the little one. A chip off the big rock, but a rock nonetheless. So I kind of think it actually, I think what Jesus was getting at is we need someone who's, who's kind of hard in the head. Because that was Peter. Amen? Someone whose example to us. There's probably not a guy in here who doesn't, man, at least I thank God for Peter. Because there's hope for me. Amen? Impulsive. The second group, and as we see them, Philip seems to be the head. He was the responsible for Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And so as you look at these guys, uh, Philip's name means lover of horses. And, and uh, remember about him, Jesus says, uh, you're son of Joseph. And he says, you know, Hey, I, I kind of understand you're one of those people that um, I know has a tender heart. We need tender-hearted people in ministry, amen? But we also need Peters. You know, when somebody comes through the front door and they want to harm someone, you don't want to send Philip, the lover of horses. Well, okay. You, you want to send Peter with the sword, amen? Peter takes a sword and says... You're, no, you can't do that. Philip would come and go, well, let's talk. You need both. And it's wonderful how God puts these guys together and they kind of make sure that we're not out of balance in some way, shape, or form. That's why I love looking at the body of Christ and how we function. Because if it was all left up to me, oh, it would be nice and neat and in order and clean and all those kind of things. But I have a tendency to be too much that way at times. And so other people come along and say, well, you know, we actually ought to think about what color it is. That's why Connie's beneficial to me, because I'm like, paint it white. White's cheap. Look, look at the budget. The bud- Yes, white works. <laughs> and she's like, but it's the ladies' bathroom. It could be some other color, Jeff, other than white or black. You, you see, that's how ministry works. We sit here and you think about all the things that we do. We have people with musical gifts. Not everybody has those gifts, amen? We have technology going on. You know, those PowerPoint slides don't get up there by themselves. Somebody's actually has to have a gifting in that area. And so, you know, Teresa's sitting back there and Jerry's pushing all the buttons to make sure that all the, you know, because a bad sound guy can mess up good worship people, okay? It can happen. So we, we have all these things in play. And so you have Bartholomew, the son of Tomai, is, is in here. And, and basically you're going to see that these guys are not all Jews. Several of them have Greek names. And so a very diverse group. And I love that. Don't you love the diversity of the body of Christ? And I'm so thankful that we're not all the same. Because when you get a whole bunch of people together that are the same, it almost never works, does it? Yeah, you want to see that in action? Sports teams, professional sports teams, they're so puffed up, full of themselves. Everybody thinks that they're the best. You put them in front of the camera, they're kind of trying to push each other out of the way. Well, no, I'm actually the best. No, I'm the best. I'm, you know. And so you have all these differing gifts. Matthew, his name means gift of Jehovah. And as you look at his life, 
What a blessing that is, because he's the guy that sat at the... He's on the Via Maris, and the Via Maris was the, was the circular route that went around the Sea of Galilee. As I shared with you uh, last time, it was, a, it was the main road. If you were trading from Damascus, which would be in the north and to the east, which, by the way, is the world's oldest continuously inhabited city, about which it says in the last days that it will become a ruinous heap. It's one of the reasons we care about what happens in Syria as Christians. Because when that city goes down, it means the end is near. Okay, So, so it was on that road that Matthew had his little tax collection booth, his booming business collecting taxes for Rome. And so you have here a guy whose name means gift of Jehovah, and yet you look at him and go, man, you're a tax collector. But you know what? The disciples were going to wander around, and it was a good thing to have somebody with an accounting background. I am so grateful for those that have those types of gifts. Uh, my wife happens to be the church accountant. Uh, you guys sit down with, some of you, you sit down with the books, we're in trouble. Other people, you sit down with the books, you'd be, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit over the top. You gotta hit the middle in some of those areas. And so it's important to see how God is not picking all of them because they're the same. He appears to go out of his way to pick people who are not the same and he lumps them together. And so Thomas is the final one of this group. It means twin. And it's interesting that uh, we look at these guys and we go, you know, what's so neat about him? Thomas was a doubter. Amen? Aren't you thankful? Aren't you glad that God included in the apostles someone who could use a little more faith in their life? Because for me, it's one of my weaknesses. I'm really good at numbers. I'm good at organization. I have a tendency, if I can get it on a spreadsheet, it's like, I don't need God. And so God left me in that place of needing more faith. And so I have people that come along and it's just like, well, no, we probably, forget the spreadsheet, we should probably pray. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's go with the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet's good. They're like, going, no, put away the spreadsheet and let's actually pray. And that's faith. I don't want to. I like spreadsheets. And so we see that God includes in the, in the apostles somebody who had a little tough time with just simply trusting God. Lord, unless I can see the imprints of the nails on your hands, lest I can thrust my finger into your side, I, I just don't know. How awesome it is that he covers these, these boundaries of our humanity. And he ultimately will make a historic confession. My Lord, my God. And then Jesus says to him, because you have seen me and you have believed, yet blessed are those who have not seen and believe. He says, Thomas, I'm going I'm to make you an example of what faith can do takes a doubter and makes him faithful. And then the final group, and as you look at these guys, James, the son of Alphaeus, who's the leader of this group, and Simon the Zealot, and two guys named Judas. You talk about a bad assignment. It's like, really? Can I remind you that these guys didn't know who Judas was when the Lord called them? The Lord did, because he's God. And people have often asked me, well, why would he have picked Judas? I think there are a couple of principal reasons that I've settled in on as I've aged in ministry. Number one is the magnitude, and this is the number one, and I really think the most important, the magnitude of God's love. God shows us the magnitude of his love in that Judas is treated just like everybody else. We don't see Judas singled out, and I'm talking about Iscariot. I'm not talking about James the Younger. I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. I'm talking about the guy who would betray the Lord, and yet the Lord is kind and tender and gentle. And remember what I shared with you there at the triclinium? He was the one sitting next to Jesus, giving him that opportunity, showing us exactly how far grace goes. 
I, I believe with all of my heart, though the Lord, being God, knew exactly the decisions that Judas would make, I believe with all of my heart that from a human perspective, the Lord leaves Judas in this group to say, look, I will keep calling. It's up to you to respond. Judas never did. He ended up perishing, taking his own life. But Jesus said, I will stay with you until the end. So when he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, you can trust him on that. Because if it wasn't true, he surely wouldn't have left Judas in the mix. And so he begins to show us exactly how great his love actually is through that. And I think the other thing is is that the example of Judas, though it is a negative one, is also a warning. So we see exactly how far God's love goes, but we also see the warning of rejecting even the personal confrontation that the Lord would make in our lives. Very often, I'll use Judas as an example of someone who's in habitual sin. So you know what? Judas hung around with Jesus. Judas was right next to Jesus. We have people, believe it or not, I know you find this hard to believe, that come to church and they still won't forsake sin. They're actually still doing the very things that they got saved from. And I will very often use him as an example. I said, God's love is infinite. But he also still lets you reap what you have sown. And if you choose the direction of following after the things of the world, Jesus didn't make Judas Iscariot repent. He let him walk away. And so there's a warning in the life of Judas. Now in saying all of that and looking at these men, we, we see how the Lord in prayer gathers all these unlikely cast of characters together. Amen? You ever, you ever had that experience in your life where you're, you're like, how did that person ever get there? When you look at the history of Calvary Chapel, it's the history of how did that ever happen? You know, you think about Greg Glory was 19 when he became a pastor. Okay, He was 19. The only thing that he could do at that point in time was draw cartoons. He, he, he couldn't spell Greek, much less read it. You know, you look at Mike McIntosh. The guy wandered around for the first two and a half years of his ministry still believing that half of his head was gone. That's Steve Mays, my, my dear brother. I mean, this is a dude that hung around with biker gangs and got shot and left for dead in the gutter. And he pastors a church of 13,000 people. You know, you look cast of unlikely characters. You know why that's important to you? God can use anybody. He didn't line up the entire region of Galilee like in a stadium and have them all fill out cards. You know, it's just like, okay, what are your spiritual gifts? You know, you've seen those spiritual gift tests. You go online, type in spiritual gift test, you'll get one. It's the weirdest thing in the world. But you fill it out, and you're just like, well, I got this, and I got that, and that's a two, and this is a three, and this is a five. Okay, I'm a 37. And, and, and you take these tests to see exactly where your gifts lie. Jesus goes... You're a dope. I'll use you. You're impetuous. Perfect. We need one of those. You haven't got a clue. You'll be absolutely perfect for leadership. You're a mushball. Great. We'll put you in charge of the emotions of the group. You see what I'm saying? It's like he went out of his way to choose a cast of characters that you go, I'm not picking any of them. That should help you a whole bunch. Because sometimes we're our own worst critics. Amen? Matter of fact, a lot of times we're our own worst critics. And we look, well, God can't use me. God can't use me. God can't use an old contractor. Yes, God can. If God's in it, He can do anything through anybody. And He proves it as He chooses through prayer 
these 12 guys. It should be a huge encouragement, and we'll elaborate on some of the things that they do and say as we move along, and, and especially as we get to the, the parables. And I want to encourage you, the Gospel of Luke is wonderful with regard to the parables, because of all the parables in the Bible, there are 19 of them that are only found in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's a beautiful picture of how God uses these things and then explains it to the common man through these wonderful allegorical stories. Verse 17, and notice, and we'll get wrapped up this morning with this final little tidbit. We, we see the dynamic words of Jesus as, as he picks these disciples and then all of a sudden, verse 17, and he came down with them. So he's been up on the mountain. He's now coming down from that higher place down to a lower place, and I'll show you here in a moment. This is a very common thing, uh, but there in the region, especially that end of the Sea of Galilee, there are hills and little plateaus, and it becomes very easy to picture how they could both be in a flat place and still on a hill. Uh, if you've been to Arizona, you know there are all kinds of flat places that are actually mountains, amen? Uh, so, so we'll see that in a moment. Verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd. Matthew's gospel says in the hill. That's one of the differences. But we'll see how those two things tie together. And he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. And I want you to begin to see how this un- unfolds here before you. From all of Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And by the time we put together Mark's gospel and the rest of the gospel accounts, we find out they came from everywhere. They came from Egypt. They came from Saudi Arabia, modern day. They came from modern day Jordan. came from modern day Syria. They came from Iraq. People came from everywhere because by now they're all going... There's this dude wandering around with these 12 stupid guys. And, and he's like, he talks to people and they're actually healed. And when they come and they're demonically possessed, they're all of a sudden perfectly normal. And so word's getting out. And, and in this passage alone, Judea would have been the entire region, which would have been uh, some several thousand square miles. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are up in modern-day Lebanon to the north by about 65 miles. And they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And I want you to underline hear him, because it's very clear the distinction is made here in Luke's Gospel that they actually were coming for the message. Because they understood it was the message that did the healing. Can I tell you that's the truth today? It's still the message that does the healing. It's not the hands. It's not the oil. It's not magic words. It's the actual message that heals. It's God's word that does that. It's God's power that does that. It's the Holy Spirit working through people that accomplishes that as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were, it actually says, also healed. And verse 19 says, the whole multitude sought to touch him. And power went out from him, and he healed them all. Interesting phrase that's translated there. If you have a King James, uh, it it, uh, is a little bit unclear, but the correct translation of that word power uh, is really power. It's actually dunamis. It's a, it's a Greek word from which we get our word dynamite. We also get dynamo. We get dynamic from it. In other words, there was something explosive. There was something electric. There was something monumentally powerful about the simple words that Jesus spoke that transformed lives. Amen? That's the power of gospel that is unto salvation for those who believe. They're dynamic words that are spoken by Christ Himself, that then impart that power of the Spirit to someone, first to be saved, and then to go out and do the work that God's called them to do. That work still goes on. That power still exists. And as they gather together on the, the slopes of the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, it, is, it is interesting to me, because people can test this location, and I'll comment more on it next time. People can do, well, how could that happen? I will show you a little tidbit. In 2000, there was going to be a millennial gathering of Catholics. As I shared with you before, the Catholic Church basically owns every holy site in all of Israel. 
And, and so it's true with the Mount of Beatitudes as well. There's a Franciscan uh, order of sisters that had a chapel built there by all people. Mussolini helped build it, you know, so it's, you know, you can tell it's really holy if he built it. Uh, but but there were going to be a gathering of Catholics there. They anticipated a crowd of 100,000 would show up to hear uh, then the Pope speak a message from down by the seashore. There's a small cove that's directly below the area that's believed to be the Mount of Beatitudes. I have actually seen, I'm going to try and dig up a video for you, perhaps we can watch it. You can speak in a normal voice at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and it carries up that plane, and you could easily speak to 100,000 people without amplification. It can happen to this day. And, and if you go there and you begin to speak down near the water, I believe I have a video clip that I can show you of a guy standing near a tree at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He's speaking in a normal voice, and 260 yards away, you can hear him perfectly. So it, it, is, it is not impossible that Jesus could have simply just spoken to this giant crowd of, you know, maybe perhaps a couple of thousand because we know that you could speak to a much, much larger crowd than that from this area of the Sea of Galilee. And so as you look at this, you're looking down towards the lake. We'll throw a few more slides in there for next time. You'll actually see likely where it was that Jesus spoke this message from. But he's on a flat place on the side of a hill. He's chosen his disciples, and he's getting ready to begin his ministry uh, in a very, very powerful way. And he will speak the Sermon on the Mount to us. Uh, one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. And so next time we'll join Jesus with the gang on the edge of the sea as he begins with the Beatitudes. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this time this morning. Lord, thank you that you, <laughs> you could have seen one of us in the crowd and we wouldn't have been excluded, God, that you, you took a bunch of normal uh, people with faults and weaknesses and by your power and your love and your great work, you spoke into them the truths uh, that were necessary for them to be used of you. And so, God, we praise you uh, for the simplicity of the biblical message. We ask that you would cause us to cling uh, to the words that we find in this book, Lord, because they are the words of life. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.